You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. I don't know if uh, you've ever had the experience of riding out a storm, um, whether it was just a bad rainstorm. Um, it seems like that's the only kind of storms other than snowstorms that we get around here. Though I do remember when uh, we first moved here in 2018, uh, hearing the tornado sirens uh, for the first time. We were living uh, over off Liberty Street in Ann Arbor, and uh, I think over towards uh, Dexter and um, uh, out towards uh, Chelsea, there was uh, kind of a funnel that was spotted that was on the ground, and I was thinking, we're in the Midwest. I grew up in Arkansas near Tornado Alley near Oklahoma, uh, and so it was normal to have uh, tornado scares uh, there, um, but it was uh, surprising and somewhat shocking to, to have one uh, here, though I found out those happen every now and then, even around here, but there's, there's something about when you ride out the storm, and after the storm passes and you go outside and there's that peace there's that calm. The, sometimes it's the, the smell of the freshly fallen rain. Sometimes uh, it's just the sense of calmness that's around you as you look out. You know, moments before you looked out and the, the trees were bending sideways and the rain was coming in and maybe something was shaking. Maybe there was lightning and the thunder that followed. And, and then uh, when you go outside, you see the ultimate sign that it's safe now that the storm has passed when you look up and you see that bow in the sky. You see the rainbow and it's that promise uh, that, uh, that there is peace and that we're reminded, um, as we know from God's word, uh, that the rainbow in the sky tells us of God's covenant that he makes, not only with Noah, but representative of, through Noah of, to all humanity, that God will not bring judgment upon the earth in the same way as he did in the days of Noah. Uh, there's, there's something about the peace and security of knowing that the storm has passed and now that peace has been reestablished. That's exactly what we see in Genesis 8, 20 through 9, chapter 17. And, and it really takes us uh, to understanding the heart of God as a covenant-making God. Uh, that God is a covenant-making God. He makes covenant with his people, which is, is really to say, to understand that the idea of covenant is it's the primary way in which God has relationship with his creation. It's the primary way in which his creatures, humanity, can enter into relationship with him. It's the way in which we can approach him with confidence to know that when we come near him, we won't be struck down, that when we, when we follow him, we know the terms upon which we follow him, that we have a God, we'll see this in the Ten Commandments, a God who demands our exclusive worship, worship the one true God. Um, that is the God of Israel, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed throughout Scripture, that he, he cares about the exclusive worship of his people, but he also cares about how we worship him, the, the terms on which we worship him. That's why he says you shall have no craven image, no idol that you create and bow down to them. He cares not only that he is worshipped, but how he is worshipped. And in being a covenant-making God, we understand that, that we can know God and upon what terms we can know him. 
And that's what we see here in Noah, the first explicit covenant uh, that's made in the Bible. Though some would look back to what God said to Adam and Eve as, a, as somewhat of an initial foundational covenant uh, with humanity that he makes with Adam and Eve. Here it's in uh, Genesis 8 that we see uh, the, the most exclusive um, depiction of what it means for God to enter into the first picture of what it means for God to enter into covenant with his creation, with, with humanity and creation as a whole. Um, so <clears throat> what I want us to see today as we continue unpacking these chapters is that God renews his purpose for creation and the plan and his plan for humanity through making an eternal and unconditional covenant. Now, <clears throat> Bryce has already read for us uh, the beginning of our passage, but if you flip back and just look at Genesis chapter 6, <clears throat> We see in, in Genesis 6, as, uh, as God uh, begins to, um, begins to uh, tell the plan of what's going to happen, the judgment that he's going to bring upon the earth, he begins to tell Noah that he is going to, he is going to take Noah and spare he and his family through the, through the waters of the flood. And he's going to bring along uh, some of every kind of animal to protect creation through all of this. But in doing so, in verse 18, he says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons and your wife and your sons' wives, and you also are to bring into the ark all of the living creatures, he unfolds um, in, in verses 19 through 21, and then 22. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. So Genesis six eighteen is the, the first place that we see God saying, I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and all of creation. And then that covenant is now unpacked after the floodwaters recede, after the storm, both the literal storm of the waters upon the earth as well as the storm of God's judgment has passed. We see God being a covenant-making God. And the first thing is we see God's renewed purpose for creation. Uh, after, the, after the floodwaters pass, and, and it gives us a detailed account of how that takes place in chapter 8, it says that Noah gets out from the ark, and the first thing that Noah does when he gets out of the ark is he worships. He builds an altar, and he makes a sacrifice, and he, he offers a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, this is the second offering that we've seen in Scripture. We saw the first in Cain and Abel as they brought an offering to the Lord. We saw then that uh, the difference between Cain and Abel bringing an offering to the Lord is that Abel brought the, the first fruits. He brought the best of, of his flock, whereas uh, Cain brought the rest of his crop. Uh, we see this kind of uh, indifference in, in Cain's offering a sacrifice to the Lord, whereas we see the, the sacrifice of faith that Hebrews 11 talks about in Abel's offering as he brings the, the first fruits, the, um, the firstborn of his flock to the Lord. And now we see in response to, to God's salvation through judgment, Noah offers the sacrifice to the Lord. It's amazing here in these foundational chapters of Scripture that, that we see the, the right response to God as a creator God and God as a redeemer God. That, that what should come out of us when we think about God is worship. It it's, it's doesn't tell us that God instructs uh, specifically for them to make an offering here, but it's seen as a response of his creation to him as the creator and as the redeemer. 
that we worship him and that this worship, it says in verse 21, is pleasing to the Lord. He smells uh, the, the aroma and it's a pleasing aroma. And he says, I will never again curse the ground. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, and I will never again strike down every living creature. We, we see this emphasis here in, in verses 20 through 22, starting here in 21, upon all of creation. He says, I will never again curse the ground. Obviously, we've seen in the flood, as we've looked at it over these, uh, this past week, we saw the, the picture of God bringing judgment upon humanity. But, but we also, also understand that what God was doing was also cleansing creation itself. Uh, and he's talking here about the curse that was brought upon the ground. This takes us back to remembering what happened when Adam and Eve sinned and God curses the ground. Not only curses Adam and Eve, the, the, disjointed, uh, the disjointed relationship between humanity and God, between humanity within itself, as well as between humanity and creation. Uh, and so we see this emphasis on uh, the curse of the ground and not striking down every living thing. You see, God cares about his creation because it's his creation that bears witness to his character. You remember, go back in your minds to Genesis 1. After each day of creation, God looks at his creation and it says he saw it and he said that it was good. And at the completion of his creation, it says he saw it and it was very good. See, creation testifies to the character of God and the goodness of God, the blessing of God that he creates. He's designed the world in such a way that it upholds his purpose. And for sin, uh, the sin of humanity to, uh, to bring about this, uh, this curse upon all of earth, is a, uh, it demands God's response to restore his creation and to renew his purpose for creation. And when you, uh, you also see that, that God, God has created all things, the earth included, in order to put humanity within that to carry out his plan uh, for humanity. God has a purpose and a plan for humanity that's tied to them being placed on this earth. And to us being placed on this earth to, to cultivate and to keep, to, to have dominion and to fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. All of these things mean that creation is the sphere, is the theater, if you will, for God's glory to be put on display. And the actors that God has put upon the stage of his theater are human beings who are to enter into this creation, to do work, to, to keep what he has given us, as well as to cultivate it in order to bear witness to him. And so here, after the floodwaters recede, after judgment has passed and Noah responds in worship, what we see is that God promises to uphold creation now, despite human sinfulness. Remember in, in Genesis 6, it says God brought judgment upon creation because the intentions and the heart of man was continually sinful always. It was kind of a, almost a redundancy for the sake of emphasis that, that all of humanity was corrupt and it had corrupted all of creation. Now he says, though humanity is sinful, notice what he says in, in 21, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. You see, God, God does an act of recreation in the flood. But humanity isn't spared from the ongoing effects of sin. We're going to look at next week uh, that follows on the heels of this passage. As soon as, as Noah makes it off the boat and offers a sacrifice and we see God renew his purpose for creation and his plan for humanity, Noah's just like Adam and Eve. 
in the garden of his vineyard, sinning against God. His children are just like the children of Cain who sin against God and bring upon themselves God's judgment. But God now is promising to uphold creation despite human sinfulness. One commentator said, however irregular the human heart may be, there will be regularity in God's world and its cycles. And we see this particularly, as it says in 22, as long as earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. We see God establishing creation as the domain in which humanity is to live, that they are to gain their sustenance, they are to make a living, that they are to be fruitful and multiply and to keep and to cultivate. And in the midst of God saying he's going to uphold creation, and, and in just a minute, in, verse, in chapter 9, we're going to see God's renewed plan for humanity. What this actually brings about, something that I think uh, is now at the forefront of conversation in our world, something that may not be, they may not say it this way, but um, the, the concern is a concern for the environment, a concern for creation. Uh, some, sometimes associated with environmentalism, uh, the term I, I prefer to, to use that I think is reflective of the Scripture's call to us as Christians is, is a call to creation care, to caring and stewarding the creation that God has given us. Uh, I think it raises the question of how we should think about our responsibility to creation. Here in Genesis 8, we see God is promising to uphold creation. He's expressing his renewed commitment to preserving creation. And here we have this sense of responsibility that we should feel towards the creation itself as well. Here's two foundational truths that I think are important. God is sovereign over creation. We see that in 22. As long as the earth endures, that's in his hands. And, uh, and he says he's going to bring about the cycles of, of creation, the seed time and harvest, the cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. These things will not cease. God is sovereign over creation, just like he created it, just like he brought judgment upon it, just like he's renewing it here. He has been, is, and will always be not only sovereign over us, but sovereign over everything around us. He's sovereign over creation, and yet humanity has been entrusted with a stewardship of creation. Humanity has been entrusted with a stewardship of creation. And I think both of these truths are foundational. Sometimes Christians have been uh, charged and even uh, guilty as charged with not caring perhaps about creation because if God's sovereign over it and God's coming back and everything's going to hell in a handbasket, then we might as well get on with doing what we want without bothering ourselves with all the recycling stuff, right? Uh, that's a sentiment that I think can be reflective and, and I make some of that tongue in cheek. And, and, and that's not one that I think ultimately reflects God's heart for creation. Because here in a minute, we're going to see, and we saw in the flood, like God cares about the animals, He cares about the creation that he's made. He looks upon his creation. If he can look, if God can look on his creation and say, it's very good. How can we look on his creation that testifies to the glory of God and say, who cares? But we also, we cannot neglect the fact that we've been entrusted with a stewardship of creation. We do not care for creation because it's now socially acceptable or politically correct. We care for creation because of a theological truth that God is the creator and he has entrusted us the responsibility of caring for his creation, both in how we found it as well as in how we develop it. Now, 
<clears throat> here in a minute, I'll show some references um, that I think are helpful. Um, but you've heard me reference uh, Francis Schaeffer before. He's a thinker, a pastor, a theologian from the 70s uh, that I often read him and I think, how was this not written five years ago? Um, he wrote a book called Death and the Pollution of Man in the 70s. And he was responding to some claims that Christianity basically has nothing to offer uh, care for the environment and care for creation. And, uh, and there are two articles he was responding to in those articles. What was being advocated for um, was kind of a greater oneness with, with the creation and, and nature and, and that that would bring us to, to caring for and recognizing our kind of joint, you know, um, destiny together, if you will, uh, and our oneness to creation. Um, and I'm, I'm emphasizing this because of these two foundational truths being important. He noted this in the 70s. He says, pantheism, the idea that we are one with all things, with creation, with the universe, the oneness that's out there. This is popular in much Eastern thinking today. This is what Schaefer wrote in the 70s. He says, pantheism will be pressed on as the only answer to the ecological problems. And it will be one more influence in the West becoming increasingly Eastern in its thinking. Um, <clears throat> And, and he was spot on. Um, that, was, that was in the 70s, nearly 50 years ago. He, he, he foresaw what was going to, to come, and I think rightly, uh, rightly was pressing into it to say, we must remember as we care for creation that God is the creator. If we lose the distinction between creator and creation and we mesh everything together, then actually upholding the value and the dignity of humanity as well as seeing the value of creation, it all gets lowered. It all gets brought down rather than being lifted up. It's an understanding the creator-creation distinct distinction that we have a rightful understanding that God is over this and has entrusted us with care for creation. I'm not here to unpack for us exactly how we should care about creation. I'm not going to give you uh, the principles of what you should do to express this, but, but I think we should care about and for creation because of these reasons. And I take this from Mark Lederbach and Seth Bible. Um, and both of these men uh, happen to be influences in my life from uh, previous church as well as seminary. They wrote a book called True North, Creation, the Gospel, and Creation Care. Um, and they say we should care about and for creation because God does. He made it, so we should take care of his stuff. We tell our kids when we hand them something and they're, you know, messing with the couch. They got their shoes on the couch. They're like, this is our couch. Like, care for the couch, right? It's, this is our stuff. Uh, we take care of it. We care because he asked us to. He's given us a mandate to be fruitful and multiply, have dominion and fill the earth. We care because he cares. We love what he loves and he looks at his creation and calls it very good. He cares because he put us on a mission. He told us to fill the earth and subdue it. We care because when we care, God is glorified. He told us that we're to, to keep and to cultivate, to worship and to obey. And we're to fill the earth with worshipers, his image bearers. We care about creation because he redeemed creation. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation is longing for the redemption that comes in Christ. And we care because he's going to transform creation. Even as he brought judgment upon creation in Genesis 6 and renews his commitment here, it points us forward to a day in which God is going to um, bring about a new heavens and a new earth. We care because, we, uh, because God will live and reign with us in that new heavens and new earth. That will be reflected in a transformed creation. And we care because he commands us to be conformed to his image, and to be conformed to his image means to imitate him. 
we care about creation. But what I want for us to do as believers is to not get swept up in the movement of our day, but to rightfully be involved in it and to be involved in caring for creation while also worshiping the creator. That's the key to care for the creation that we've been entrusted with while worshiping the creation. And this, friends, is foundational to how we understand art, to how we understand science, to how we understand uh, health and, and health care, how we understand uh, our, uh, our, our responsibility with the things that we make and the world that we, we live in. These, these foundational things tell us that we should care about the world that God has put us in without removing the distinction of creator and creation. If we worship the creation rather than the creator, we present ourselves as wise, Romans says, but we've only become fools. God calls us to to care for creation because he cares for creation. And I don't have time to unpack all of these things, but these books I would recommend to you, and uh, we can share this in a follow-up post, but Death and the Pollution of Man by Francis Schaeffer, I quoted these two, True North, Christ, the Gospel, and Creation Care by Mark Lederbach and Seth Bible. And then uh, a friend uh, who's local, actually in Monroe, at a church nearby, um, called Why Should, Creations, Why Should Christians Practice Creation Care? If you look up Spence Spencer uh, or Andrew Spencer, uh, all of these resources I would encourage you to think about um, and, and to, uh, to call us to reflect God's heart uh, as we see his renewed purpose for creation. But the renewed purpose for creation is tied to God's renewed plan for humanity in chapter 9. God's renewed plan for humanity. We see starting in in verse 1 that God renews his commission to humanity. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If you've been reading through Genesis, that should sound familiar to you, right? That's Genesis 1. Uh, 28, that's the, uh, the foundational commission that God has given us uh, to, to care for creation. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we see it repeated consistently throughout the beginning of Genesis. We, we uh, noted last week in Genesis, uh, I think it's in Genesis 5, uh, as, or a few weeks ago, in Genesis 5, as it begins, the line of Seth, it takes us all the way back to the creation of Adam and Eve, that he was, that Adam and Eve were made in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. They were created, he blessed, and he called them mankind. It's this continual returning to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, this foundational truth of who we are. We, we live in a world that I think is having an identity crisis. Uh, I forget the number of books that have the term identity in them. I saw recently uh, just the multitude of books that talk about identity, identity this, identity that. The most foundational thing about our identity uh, that, that begins uh, the, the catechism that we've been using with our kids uh, in Jesus Kids Club. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own but belong to God. That, that we are created by God and made in his image. And this foundational truth from the very beginning of creation to hear the renewal of God's plan for humanity is repeated time and time again. And friends, as people are craving for an understanding of their identity, perhaps as you struggle with understanding your identity, either in a new season of life or, or looking ahead to, to what's before you and you're unsure of what's before you, remember this foundational truth that we are made by God and that we are made for God. 
that God created us in his image. He calls the shots. He made us according to his design as male and female. And he calls us with purpose to live in this earth, to fill it and have dominion over this earth, to be stewards of what he's entrusted to us. This foundational truth is foundational to to understanding the value of who we are as human beings, our identity as human beings. It's foundational to understanding family, that God uh, gives and and upholds the the goodness of family as the means upon which the earth is filled and multiplied. It's a foundational truth to understanding human beings' place in the world and the work that we're to do. All of us should think about the work that we do, whether it's in our home or in the workplace, whether it's an official job or an unofficial job, if it's a serving capacity, to think about how in our serving we're reflecting God's plan for us as articulated in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. How we are, are having dominion and filling the earth in a way that bears witness to who God is, that brings glory to who he is. This applies to all of our work, whether it's done with our hands or done with our minds whether it's done in the, the craziness of the night with little ones or in the broad daylight and uh, in the fullness of, of what you have before you at your job, all of us have an understanding of our place in the world because God has put us in this creation and has a plan for us in the midst of it. So we see this renewed commission. And it's so, I think, so encouraging to, to just consistently be reminded of this. But we also see uh, I think something that's a little different here in Genesis 9 that wasn't there in Genesis 1. Now we have the presence of sin. You notice what's different about this in, in verse 2. It says that fear and terror, the fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, creatures that crawl on the ground, and fish of the sea that are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As a side note, um, in Genesis 1, I start to kind of think, like, maybe God wanted us to be vegan. Um, you know, it doesn't say anything about the animals being food for us in Genesis 1. And some of the vegans are like, come on, preach. Um, <clears throat> but here in Genesis 9, to assure the rest of us, God says, I've also given you all the animals to eat from as well. So um, you, can, you can partake uh, of your steak tonight uh, as you watch the game, or you can choose not to, and God is glorified either way. But that's not the main point here. Uh, I've also, he says, given the green plants for you. Uh, both are good, the meat and the green plants. Uh, it's basically a Whole30 diet, right, I think? Um, but uh, he goes on to say, however, you must not eat the meat, with, which is... Um, You must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. The blood, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, And then he goes on to talk about, I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. When blood is shed, I will require it from any animal that kills a human being or from any human being that kills another human being. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. We see the reality of sin and that sin is present. Fear and terror will be on the earth and violence will still be on the earth. Here we are, Genesis 9. God has just started over with humanity. Here's Noah and his family in the boat. And God says, what's ahead of you is fear and terror and violence. Now that sounds like a depressing uh, point, right? Um, go, Go out there and be fruitful and multiply. Uh, But as you do it, expect these things. Um, 
And while on one hand it seems like a, a downer to say that, I, I also think just a continual reminder to us of what God's Word does for us is that it tells us the truth about the world in which we live in. So we go about and we look at the world we live in, and sometimes what makes us question God is why is it so messed up? Why did people do so many terrible things? Why is the earth filled with violence and fear and terror? Why do you turn on the news and get depressed if you turn it on, right? Like, why, why do we see these things and they make us question, can God really be good? Is God really at work? And yet we see here in Scripture, God says, this is the world into which we live. It's a world in need of redemption. It's a world that I have not left to itself, though I will uphold creation in spite of human sinfulness. We are going to see in just a moment God's covenant sign reminds us that he is going to act once and for all to bring peace, the peace that we all long for, into the hearts of human beings and into the earth, into the, the creation that he has made. It shows us that life in a fallen world is marked by these things so that we shouldn't doubt God when we see them, but we should remember what God has said and bear our responsibility to be in this earth in the midst of sin, accomplishing God's work. I <clears throat> decided to uh, not press in as much to um, what we see here in 5 and 6 as it talks about um, the, the significance of, uh, of human life, but to say this. <clears throat> here we see, I think, what's foundational for us. It, we saw already that God values human life made in his image when Cain kills Abel. Here it becomes explicit in the text. This is a foundational text for understanding the place, uh, I think, of, of human government. Obviously, the value of the dignity of life, uh, the value of life we understand from a sacrificial system that it's the blood of the animal that was offered for the sake of the forgiveness of sins in the sacrificial system. That's why we also understand that God says in, in Leviticus that it's without the shedding of blood that there is no forgiveness of sins. That's particularly referring to the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, but that when we come to the cross of Christ, that it's in the shedding of the blood of Christ that we have the once and for all sacrifice, the sacrifice of all times that does away with the need for continual sacrifices made by a high priest in the Old Testament. But now one has come who is both the high priest and the sacrifice, the one who offers the sacrifice and the one who is the sacrifice, lays down his life for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's this value uh, of the, the blood that is the, uh, the life, um, as it says in, uh, in verse um, in verse 4, that it's the lifeblood in which uh, we see uh, the, the, the vitality of life that this foundational truth for understanding sacrifice and human dignity, but also, I think, for understanding human government, the need and place for human government that Paul will pick up in Romans 13, that the government is given to us, um, that this authority is given to us. No doubt different nations and different times have organized themselves in different ways, and, um, and there's problems with every system, and, and yet it's good, God says, when human government is given to uphold what is good and to punish what is evil. 
uh, to, to uphold human life and to punish what is human life. And there's great discussion um, by uh, men like Chuck Colson and, and others who talk about the, the place and the role of the death penalty uh, in, in modern society um, that um, I've already stepped into one controversial topic. I won't step into that uh, too much today, but to say that there, there obviously is a foundational truth that, uh, that we see here in scriptures that is the basis of what is understood today as the death penalty. There are also good arguments that I think that are made for whether or not we have the ability, uh, based upon our track record and the, uh, the exoneration of innocent men and women who have been uh, charged with the death penalty, who have later been exonerated or charged with life in prison, who have later been exonerated, and, um, and injustices within our criminal justice system that have taken place historically of whether or not we should be enacting the death penalty today based upon those things, based a, upon our track record and the, particularly the presence of racism and the punishment uh, and the, the measuring out of, uh, of those death penalties. Uh, I think that's a good question for us to consider. I'm not here to solve it for us, but what I'm here to say is we have both the, the truthfulness of God's word that tells us that human life is valuable and the shedding of human life demands God's judgment. God will have his judgment, whether in this life or the next. We also have a commitment to reflecting his character and judging our own sinful hearts and the measuring out of that judgment uh, that should give us humility and cause us to stop and think about these things with carefulness and with wisdom and with dependence on God um, and would commend you to do that as we see it addressed here in God's word. Verse 7 sums up and brings a book into this section of God's renewed plan for humanity when it says... <clears throat> But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. That brings us to the, the last point, <clears throat> that God, um, <clears throat> God not only has a renewed plan, a renewed purpose for creation, a renewed plan for humanity, but we see that God's covenant promises are the foundation for creation and for humanity. It says, And then God said to Noah and his sons, Understand that I'm establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, which is to say God is establishing his covenant with all of humanity, right? That's all of humanity right there, Noah and his family and the descendants that come after them. That's us, as well as all uh, the living creatures with you, a covenant for all future generations, unconditional, eternal covenant that God makes. He lays this and establishes his covenant with humanity, and we see this foundational truth that God is a covenant-making God. We can't go over these in detail, but we see these covenants that God gives us throughout Scripture. We'll talk some about this in our upcoming Equip class as we talk about the storyline of Scripture. We looked at these covenants in depth in our, um, in our Advent series as we walk through Matthew uh, 1, 1 through 17. But we see that God is a covenant-making God who, who establishes a relationship with humanity uh, and upon the terms upon which they can come to know him, it's, it's these covenants that show us who God is and how we can know him. And here we are at the beginning of the Noahic covenant in which God's eternal, unconditional covenant is made with all of humanity and with all creation. It's the introduction of God as a covenant-making God. A God who wants relationship with his people and who establishes the terms upon which the earth and the creation will, will be upheld and will be sustained in spite of human sinfulness. And it's within, it's within this reality that God is going to make his promises to Abraham and to David that will ultimately lead us to the new covenant, in which Christ comes 
the son of David, the son of Abraham, as the scripture says, and who brings this covenant, this new covenant of knowledge with God, forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. It's the foundation of the new covenant that is the new covenant. That's the foundation of our practice of the Lord's Supper. That reminds us that when Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed, he said that his blood being shed was for the forgiveness of sins. It was the blood of the new covenant. The same God who makes the new covenant with us is the God who makes the Noahic covenant, who says he's going to uphold creation and he has a plan for humanity. We, we rest in the fact that we have a covenant-making God. Without a covenant-making God, we have no hope of knowing God. You see, the idea of covenant is that God establishes the relationship. He acts first. If he doesn't, there's no relationship. There's no knowledge of God. There's no communion with God. There's no intimacy with God. We have a covenant-making God, and upon that is all of our hope. But he also establishes a covenant sign. It says in verse 12, God said, The sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When, whenever I form the clouds of the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures. Whatever water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all living creatures. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on the earth. The sign of the bow in the sky. It's a sign that peace has been established, that there is now peace after judgment has come, that the waters of judgment have receded, that salvation has been provided, that there is now peace that's testified in the sky. Now, today we think about this covenant and we think we look to the skies and we think, man, isn't it good that God has promised us that he'll never, he'll never destroy the earth again in the same way that he did through the flood? But when we read Genesis, do you know that the sign is given not for us, primarily? Do you notice who, who it says that the sign is given to? Who, who is going to be reminded of this covenant when he looks into the sky? Look in verse 15. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. He says, the bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all living creatures on the earth. It's given, the bow is put in the sky as a reminder to God. Now, sometimes I make promises to my kids, like promises in the heat of the moment, like if you just be quiet and stop yelling, I'll give you candy, right? Um, and then I kind of hope that they forget uh, after the storm has passed, uh, if you know what I'm saying. And, they, and they, they then come to me and they gently or sometimes obnoxiously remind me of the promise that I made to them. You said you would give me candy if I stopped yelling. Even though they probably didn't stop yelling the way I wanted them to, they in their minds thought they stopped yelling in the way that I wanted them to. So now they come to make good on the promise that I've given them. And and that reminder is a reminder to act. And I think here's the important part. God doesn't, doesn't forget. It's not like a storm starts and God's like, maybe today's the day I take them all out again. You know, <laughs> it's not like God forgets what he said. But to say that God remembers is to say that God is 
provoked to act on the basis of what he said. It's a, it's a promise to act on what, what he has said. And when God looks at the bow, he remembers that his judgment won't come through the waters again. Instead, the bow reminds him of the peace and the covenant that he's made. And the, the term is interesting. It doesn't actually call it a rainbow here. It calls it a bow. The, the terminology is the same terminology used for hunting and for warfare. The idea that a bow uh, is used to hunt. And the picture uh, that I think is, uh, is reflective to us today that we can be reminded of is what direction the bow is pointed. The bow is pointed in such a way that the arrows won't fall on us. The, the arrows of God's judgment won't fall upon us as they did in the days of Noah. Instead, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, the arrows are pointed up straight to the heart of God. Because one day God will act again to do away with sin. He will blot out sin once and for all. That decisive act is twofold. The ending of the act is when Jesus returns. But the act that caught a lot of people by surprise and the act that we haven't gotten over still today is when he came first, not riding on a horse in judgment, but born as a baby in a manger to come, not for our judgment, but for our salvation. And the arrows of God's judgment that were shot from the bow were not shot at us, but that they were shot at the Son of God on the cross, that he received the judgment of God for our sin. He took it upon himself so that we might have peace with him. Romans 5 tells us that whoever is justified, whoever's made right with God through faith in Christ, having been justified, Romans 5.1 says, we now have peace with God. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news that we're reminded of that we're declared righteous by faith. And we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But that's our hope. That the judgment won't fall upon us, but when it does fall, or when it did fall, it fell upon Christ. <clears throat> and all who place their trust in Him will be spared of judgment in the end. But just as we've been reminded in walking through Noah, and the story of Noah and the flood, all those who refuse to trust in Him Though they won't experience judgment as it was in the days of Noah, God tells us that judgment is coming and that all will give an account. And it's God's kindness and mercy that he hasn't returned so that all might repent and trust in Christ. See, the sign of the covenant is the bow in the sky that offers true, prom that offers true safety, true rest, true acceptance. And in, in our culture today, we think about the, the bow that's put in the sky, the rainbow. And, and it's, a, it's a sign today that's still a sign in which people uh, find comfort and hope in. And I say this because it's hard not to talk about the rainbow today without talking about uh, its modern day implications. 
as we think about the rainbow and the um, <clears throat> Gilbert Baker in particular who took the idea of the rainbow and forming the, uh, the gay pride flag, the LGBTQ flag as a, a sign. He says he took it from the sky as a, as a sign of peace, that it would be a natural way to attest to the idea of blended difference and beauty comprising a variety of diverse elements being brought together. It was a symbol of safety, he says. And, and it is a, a symbol that many people have found comfort and hope in. It promises some, uh, some form of inclusion, some form of diversity, though I think within our culture that uh, we see often a testifying of businesses and coffee shops and within our secular culture that the, the flag isn't just a symbol of inclusion and diversity, but also a symbol of, a symbol of ideological conformity, that we must conform to this image. And I bring this up because of how prevalent it is in our society and to remind us of what God has said and how God has spoken. And, and the symbol of a rainbow is indeed this hope for safety. It's fitting in that regard. And I, real, I hear the, and have, have, have seen the, the hurt and the desire of acceptance that many people who identify as gay and lesbian uh, or across the, the spectrum uh, that they find in it. And yet, we have to understand that there is a true and better safety that's to be found. A true and better safety that the bow, the rainbow, and the sky reflects. You see, in our inclusive culture, telling the truth about sin is, is important. Whether it be heterosexual sin or homosexual sin or not even sexual sin. And some of you are crawling in your skin right now thinking about some of this, just as I have thinking about saying it sometimes. <clears throat> the truth is, it's never been popular to tell the truth. Just ask John the Baptist or any of the prophets or Jesus himself. But here's, here's what I bring this up because I think this is important. I actually don't think telling the truth is going to be our hardest problem. I think the hardest part that we have of living in an inclusive culture, there's nothing new other than the sun either, and so we shouldn't be surprised by this, but the hardest part is not standing firm in the truth, but it's standing firm in the truth while also being generous in love. Isn't that how God is? As he brings about judgment upon the earth, his rainbow in the sky testifies to his generous love testifies to the truth of God's judgment against sin in all its forms, including ours, and it testifies to his generous love and grace that's over all creation, that testifies to everyone everywhere that there is a covenant-making God who calls us to know him, that true safety is found, not through excusing or celebrating sin, whatever form it may be, but true safety is found when we come to the one who removes sin and takes judgment for us. That's what Jesus offers. That's who we follow. And the one we follow is the one we're called to imitate and be like. I want us to be a people who stand firm in the truth while also being gracious and generous and love. I think that'll actually be harder than just saying what we know to be true. That's what God is calling us to. That's who God is. He is a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God. Four blessings to, to close us out as we take the Lord's Supper today of knowing our covenant-making and keeping God. Forgiveness of sin, 
There is a God who wants to know us, and the only way we can know Him is if He removes our sin. Security in our salvation. That there is a God not only who wants to know us, but once we come to know Him, He says nothing can pluck us out of the Father's hand. I don't know if you grew up believing perhaps that you could lose your salvation believing that maybe if you sinned in this way or that way that God would write you off, maybe thinking that you needed to do enough in order to earn God's favor, to do better and to do more so that God would be pleased with you. Our covenant-making God provided a means of salvation through Christ and His death on the cross that we could have security in our salvation. And through security in our salvation, we could have hope for our future, that we could know where we're headed and be certain of it. And if we have hope for our future, then in the present, as we live in a world filled with sin and violence and terror and death, we can have comfort in our sorrows. But there's a God who draws near. There's a God who sees. And most importantly, there's a God who remembers. Not because he forgets, but because he promised to act.